Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, I think there's still some coming in, but we're just gonna get get going. Um, so we just saw, I mean, about as good of a love montage from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, most recently. Uh, and so, I mean, you've seen most of those movies, right? Most of them, uh, or some of them. Uh, that means that most of us, parents and kids, have grown up thinking that we live in a romantic comedy. It's true. Uh, we do. Our lives are waiting for and they're building towards and will culminate in an explosion of romance. And so everything up until that point, uh, when we either have a boyfriend or girlfriend or when we are at the altar or whatever it is, everything in our life is building towards that. And then when that happens, then life begins uh, of our happily ever after. Uh, it's true, though, that what we watch actually begins to inform what we think about and how we think. So when I was about 8 to 12 years old, I watched two to three episodes of Saved by the Bell every day. Uh, and I could not wait to get to high school where I could finally live life as Zach Morris and please God, have a girlfriend like Kelly Kapowski, right? Um, and then in middle school, uh, in high school, I started watching Friends. Uh, I wasn't convinced that premarital sex was okay, uh, but then I began thinking more and more about what the boundaries might actually be. Um, and then, man, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm not about to make a really terrible confession, but, you know, I've watched a season or two of The Bachelor, uh, either with my wife or when I was in college, uh, this show called Joe Millionaire came out on Fox, and me and my roommates watched all two, both seasons. It was this thing where it was like a trash man, but they lied to the girls and said that he was a multimillionaire. And then after he picked the girl at the end, uh, he had to tell her, I, you know, make $10,000 a year or something. And was she in it for the money or the love? And she, they were always in it for the, for the money. And, uh, but we loved watching these things, uh, and it's crazy, though. I mean, you guys, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you've watched The Bachelor, right, we've got, uh, we've got somebody who, people who have known each other for, like, a week, a less, less than a week, and then when a girl gets sent home, what happens in the limo ride away from the mansion? Wreck, right? She, her life is over. I, I knew this was the one. She's known him for like three days, maybe a day. Uh, and it's crazy. Um, so the problem is, I fear, certainly as Christians, is that we are kind of like frogs in a boiling pot. Uh, that as the culture around us changes and fluctuates, we go with it. Um, our consciences are slowly evaporating as Christians. We're looking more and more like the culture around us. Um, and so I think this happens because we don't really have a plan as Christians. We don't have a plan, perhaps as parents, as how we want to lead our kids in thinking about uh, marriage and dating. And then certainly as middle school, high school, college, out of college, uh, we, we just kind of just float along. And then our lives begin ending more and more looking like uh, friends or the bachelor. Um, rather than a radically different version. Uh, we're just kind of a baptized version of the culture around us. Because we don't have a plan, we're just stumbling along, 
mimicking what we see on TV, in movies, or in Taylor Swift songs. Um, so we're left with a question. Um, sorry, I lost this. Uh, we're left with a question. Maybe this is going to work, maybe it's not. There it is. Well, I can't see that. Okay, well, whatever. Uh, we're left with questions of what is the point of a relationship? Uh, who should I date? Should I date at all? Uh, what can I or can't I do in a dating relationship? How far is too far physically in a dating relationship? And has the Bible even spoken to any of this? So these are questions that we want to get through in, in all of that today. Um, so I've got bad news for you. Uh, many of you probably came here to find out what's allowed in your dating relationships. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I'm not here to just give you a bunch of rules to follow. Um, Troy Simons at Oak Grove, he's the headmaster there at classical school, and he says that education, well, he quotes Aristotle. He didn't make this up. He quotes Aristotle, who says that education is, te is about teaching the student what he ought and ought not to like. And I think it's good. So I think over the next three hours or so, we want to start to think about that. I don't want to just give you a bunch of pharisaical rules of what you can and can't do this side of marriage, uh, but I want us to maybe start thinking a little bit more and more about what we ought and ought not to like, not just what we ought and ought not to do. Um, so classical education, Troy Simon says, is about not uh, informing the mind, putting a a lot of stuff in, but about forming the mind to think. And so I want to hopefully help us uh, this morning to form our minds rather than just put a bunch of information in. Uh, so I want to try to help, help you let the Bible form your desires in dating or marriage relationships. Help form what you think is ultimately satisfying. And I want the Bible to hopefully do that, let God speak to that, rather than just Taylor Swift and friends, okay? Um, so, uh, I'm going to be referencing this book a whole lot. Uh, I should, I totally dropped the ball and should have gotten 20 copies of this in the book nook. Uh, I think there might be one, maybe even none right now. We usually have it. Uh, this is the best book that I've ever read on this. It's called Sex, Dating, and Relationships by two guys, Gerald Heastand and Jay Thomas. And I read this about a year before I came here, probably in 2011. And I was so thankful for it, but it also just made me so sad that I didn't have this when I was in high school and college. So I can't commend this to you enough. Uh, you should get it and read it. I'm basically just going to tell you everything that's in it, though, this morning, okay? Uh, so um, we're going to do a couple things this morning. This first, the, first, um, the first session this morning until we're gonna, we'll go for about 30 or 40 minutes here, then we'll break. We're just going to talk about the purpose of relationships first. So, Chris, are you on this now? Okay. Um, so the first thing that we need to understand about ourselves and about what God has done in his creation of us is understand uh, who we are. So the first thing that we need to understand is that God has actually made us sexual beings, okay? Uh, so in cultures throughout all of history, sexual desire has been one of the greatest motivators of the human will. Men and women will, and we've seen this just in history or in stories or in music or poetry or whatever, but men and women will throw away their families, their houses, all of their money, 
their land in order to be sexually satisfied. Uh, Some are addicted to sexual desire. Wars have been fought over it, right? Uh, The the Trojan Wars, right? Uh, We compose songs about it, we make movies about it, we write stories about it. But why didn't God just make us asexual beings, right? He could have. There are organisms in creation that are asexual, that cells go like this, right? They reproduce by themselves. So why couldn't he have done this? I tell this to our youth sometimes. Like, he could have made me a person that, like, the top half of me, like, just slid off, and now there's two people. Uh, But he didn't. He didn't make us that way when he could have. And so until we understand the answer to this, why he made us the way he made us, uh, we won't understand dating relationships, and we won't really understand marriage very well either. So why did God make us sexual? And the purpose of this is this. And the purpose of a sexual relationship is this, to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. The purpose of a sexual relationship is to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. So how is this? To understand this, we need to understand, let me do a little bit of just Bible 101 here on the idea of a type in the Bible, uh, that there are things that point to other things in the Bible. So Paul says in Romans 5, 14, Paul writes this, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. So Paul is saying that Adam was a type of Christ. So what do we mean by type? Uh, the, the word comes from a Greek word, tupos, which literally means a blow or an impression. So like if I had a piece of a thin aluminum and I had a hammer and I hit the aluminum, uh, the blow left, leaves an impression. The impression looks like the thing which hits it, okay? Uh, like a typewriter. That's why we call it a typewriter. The old things, maybe you've never seen one. I barely have seen one. I'm almost, <laughs> almost old enough to have at least seen one. But these little hammers hit the piece of paper, right? And they leave a type. They leave an impression of ink on the paper. So just as an impression or an indentation represents that which hit it, so a type points to or represents something other than itself. So just as Adam's choice in the Garden of Eden had ramifications for his prosperity, uh, Christ's choice in the Garden of Gethsemane had ramifications for his prosperity and for the whole of mankind, just like Adam. The Passover lamb, the same thing. those who were trusting in the blood over the lamb of the lamb to cover their house to keep them from sin and judgment, uh, we find out in the New Testament that this was pointing us to that Passover lamb was like an impression where Jesus is the real thing, the real substance. So, we're, 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 sounds like we're kind of wasting our time. Let's get to can we make out or not, right? Uh, but uh, we'll get there. We need to understand this first. We need to understand that just as God has purposed the Passover lamb to be a type of Christ, to point us to and to build our expectation and our anticipation for what Jesus does for us on the cross, similarly, God created sexual union and marital union 
to be a type of Christ's one flesh union with the church. So the Passover lamb didn't just share some happy coincidences. It wasn't like the apostles are sitting around a couple years after the crucifixion and resurrection, and they're like, wait a minute, guys, I've got a great sermon illustration. Uh, Remember that thing that happened with our people way back in Egypt and Exodus? I think that's kind of like what happened with Jesus. Uh, I think this will really preach. Uh, That's not what happened. God planned that story thousands of years before the cross in Egypt to prepare his people for the real exodus, the exodus from sin. And so there was divine intent with this thing that pointed us to this thing. It's not like this thing happened and then we look back and found some happy coincidences. So the same is true with what God has done for marriage. So uh, let's look at Ephesians 5, 24 through 32. I'll have it up here if you don't have a Bible. But Paul writes, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now here we go. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then quoting Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And back to Paul, he's saying this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So by what logic does Paul ask husbands and wives to relate to each other as Christ and the church? The answer is found there in verse 32, that human marriage refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage is a type of Christ's relationship to the church. Jesus and the church in God's planning uh, of all eternity comes before he actually puts Adam and Eve in the garden. This is important. He, before he creates the world, God is envisioning the marriage of the church to Jesus. And so he puts Adam and Eve in the garden to prepare us for that. Not the other way around. He didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden. And then a couple thousand years later is like, hey, Holy Spirit and Jesus, I've got a great plan here, right? Uh, let's, let's, let's marry Jesus to the church just like we did a few thousand years ago with Adam and Eve. No, 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 not at all. And so drawing on the ancient marriage formula of Genesis 2, Paul reveals a mystery. I, that is like a, something that was previously hidden. That sexual one fleshness uh, within marriage was created by God to serve as a foreshadowing of the spiritual oneness that would exist between Christ and his church, okay? So St. Augustine in the 300s or so said, it is of Christ and the church that it is most truly said, the two shall be one flesh. He said, while husband and wife can share one flesh, it's actually more true in, in any kind of a sense you want to think about that there is more one flesh union between Jesus and his church. So something profound occurs in marriage, but even more specifically, something profound happens even through sexual intercourse. 
The marriage union is not just a legal union. It's not just you going down to the courthouse and having some papers signed. It's not just a social union. It's not just a financial union where we had two bank accounts and now we have one bank account. It's not just a union of families. We had two families and now we have one. While all that's true, it's more so even a union of bodies, a sharing of physical life. So after the marriage covenant is verbally agreed to at the wedding, we might say, you guys know this big word from your government classes, we might say that the marriage covenant is agreed to at the wedding, but then is ratified, it's made real uh, through sex. So sex initiates and then in a way sustains the marriage covenant. I heard a, a pastor once who I really respect, so this is why I didn't immediately like just stand up and walk out the door because I uh, really respected him. But he said something shocking when I heard him talking about marriage one time. And he said that sex is almost like communion is to the Christian. Uh, what is communion for us? It is a uh, continual, ongoing, and visceral, meaning we can feel, taste, touch, all of that uh, for, with the senses, a continual and visceral, visceral reminder of the covenant that we have with God through Christ. And sex should uh, operate as nearly the, the same thing. A continual, it's not like the covenant was broken and so we have to have sex to make the covenant right again, but it's a continual and visceral reminder of the covenant that was agreed to at a wedding. All that to say, this is why sex outside of marriage is so destructive. It's completely broken from the purpose which God has created it for. But remember that sex is a type, not a sermon illustration. So God created this for this. God created sex for our uh, expectation and building towards our union with Christ. So uh, I keep talking about this union with Christ. So before continuing about sex and relationships, I just wanted to make sure that we're clear about the gospel first, okay? Make sure that we're all on the same page here. So if all of this is supposed to point us to and help us understand with a better understanding of the gospel, uh, then I want to make sure that we're all clear on, on the gospel. So we keep talking about union with Christ, right? A one flesh union with Christ. The gospel says that we are forgiven. That's why Jesus's death was important, right? He had to die so that God could forgive us of our sins. God is able to forgive sins because his wrath is poured out on Jesus on the cross. But in Here's something, though. While forgiveness is really, 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 really important, right? This is, why, this is one reason why Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so that God might forgive us. Uh, forgiveness in and of itself is not enough. You know that? We often think of the gospel as like a second chance, a, a do-over, a redo. We are forgiven, and now we're going to move on from here with a, a new second chance that God has given us. But do you see why that's not good enough? Why is that not good enough? Because you've blown it in the second chance too, right? Uh, we're, we're still sinners. Just a one-time cleansing and forgiveness of sin at the cross uh, and putting our faith in Jesus in the cross, uh, that moment is not enough. We don't just have some mistakes erased. Our very nature must be changed. 
the source of our sinful actions. Our spiritual death must be made alive. It's not just a, let's erase all the mistakes that Nathan had, and now he's going to try again. No, we're going to erase all the mistakes that Nathan had, and now give him a new source of or motivation for living. Uh, So that's why, uh, just in the youth, we've defined the gospel as the good news through the, that God forgives sinners, or God saves sinners through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's not just the death of Jesus, it's the life of Jesus and his resurrection. So just as the husband and wife become one flesh physically, for those who are in Christ, we share in his life. We share in his flesh, his good and obedient life now shared together with his people. We have his life. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And then Peter says in 2 Peter 1 that we become sharers in his very nature. So we're born again, uh, meaning we get a new life in Christ. Not just because we have said a prayer of forgiveness and we have now vowed to get better throughout the rest of our life. We're born again, a new life. Because the very life of Christ through the Holy Spirit inside of us is now there. So, this is why, now, one of the most common metaphors throughout the New Testament is that of a wedding. Of us, the church, being Jesus' bride. We are wed to him. We are waiting for a marriage supper. He is our bridegroom. Through a union that sex is meant to point us toward, we receive his life. Now, one caveat right off the bat before we get, before we move on for the rest of our morning. Um, Because of our union with Christ, listen to me on this, we don't need union with someone of the opposite sex. We don't need it. We don't need it for fulfillment. We don't need it for a deeper understanding of the gospel. While sexual union should give us a deeper understanding of the gospel. We don't have to have it. While marriage is a good gift from God uh, for those who will get married, uh, marriage can also become a major place of distraction, major major place of idolatry for for the married and the unmarried alike, right? um, One trap that many young people fall into is uh, thinking, because we've been watching all of these movies our entire life, that once we get married, life is going to be now the, the new chapter of the most amazing part of my life, and then you find out you're married to another sinner, and you're like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. My life is now actually, actually is a Taylor Swift song of broken hearts or something, right? Uh, but just like my desire for other good God-ordained gifts, like food or good and productive jobs, amazing vacations. These are things that God gives. Uh, Just like all of those are good gifts from God, designed that I might enjoy and worship him through him, uh, I can also begin to worship those, begin to worship the gift rather than the giver. But I don't need any of those things for deep and lasting union and communion with God. So the fact that God has made you a sexual being doesn't mean that we, uh, that we creatures that have sexual urges uh, can no longer control our sexual desire um, and we need f- sexual outlet or fulfillment, right? 
This is not true. And so I, I just want to say that off the bat, knowing that a lot of you guys are still in high school. There's some college folks here. There's some in your mid-20s, late-20s. Uh, it's not, it, it is not ordained that all of us get married, and that's okay. Uh, we don't need that. We don't need physical union and communion with another person of the, sex, of the opposite sex to have that. Why? Because we have the deepest and richest with our Lord and bridegroom, Jesus. Um, and in fact, we might, we might point out that just like I said, marriage can be a distraction of our worship. It can be a distraction of our energy and ministry as well. That's why Paul says, I don't desire to be married. Can you imagine? I couldn't do all the things that I can do now if I was married and had kids, right? Um, so it can be a distraction in so many ways. So I just want to get that uh, on the table, first of all. Um, okay, so now understanding that sex and sexual union and marital union is meant to point us toward and build our expectation toward uh, our union with Christ, this knowledge of this higher reality then helps us understand how we should behave within this realm of an earth re earthly reality. In other words, our sex lives should be patterned after the way in which Christ and the church relate spiritually, if this makes sense. So it's tempting for me to talk about God's laws and commands strictly on a human level. All right, people, this is what he says, do this and don't do that. But we need to better understand how it works here rather than just here. So we could talk about sex and dating in the same way. We could talk about STDs, we could talk about adverse psychological effects. We could talk about unwanted pregnancies, effects on a future spouse, or all of these things. And while those might be helpful things to sometimes think through, um, the point is, what would happen if you had a, quote-unquote, safe and protected sexual relationship with the person that you were definitely going to get married to? Is it still a problem? You bet it's a problem. Uh, because we're only thinking on a human level. We're only thinking about how my uh, relationship with this person affects he or she and me, right? Rather than my union and communion uh, vertically. So we need to begin thinking more on a heavenly plane, on a vertical plane. So the way that we behave sexually must conform to the way which God has created sex to illustrate. And that is, like we've already talked about, the life-changing nature of the gospel. So... Just as Christ reserves himself spiritually for his spouse, the church, so too we are called to reserve ourselves sexually for our husband or our wife. Just as Christ is united to the church alone, thus a man not must be united to his wife alone. Christ does not divorce his bride, ever. We must not divorce our spouse. We need, we need horizontal alignment, which... Uh, with what is happening already, already vertically. So, uh, why do we just talk about all of this sex stuff? Especially some of you younger uh, middle school and early high school kids in here. You're not necessarily even thinking about this kind of relationship uh, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I just want to know if I can date that girl, right? Look, I'm 16 and can I or should I date that girl? Uh, 
And more importantly, when I start dating that girl, what is allowed? How far can we go without being in sin? But I just want to get this, get us right on this first, that your sexuality has a higher purpose than just your pleasure, just your fulfillment. Your sexuality is primarily to point you and others to the gospel and to the life of Christ. You and your decisions are not ultimately about you. If you're a Christian, then you're no longer your own. You're bought with a price. So your decisions and your actions are no longer just your decisions and your actions any longer. And I'm also trying to convince you for the rest of the day that Christians... Parents in here, you can amen with me. Christians are not sexual prudes. Okay, we're not afraid of sex. It's not icky. Uh, we shouldn't be scared by it. Listen, Christians, can I get an amen? Love sex. Amen. amen. All right. Uh, and here's the deal. Christians should love sex more than any human on the planet. Why? Because we understand what it's for and what it's doing rather than just the place of just a fleeting uh, physical uh, pleasure, right? It's not just a fleeting physical pleasure. It is pointing us to and uh, preparing us for our full and final one flesh union with Christ. So sex isn't evil or sinful. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's good and right. You should want it. You should desire it. God made you a sexual being, right? But you should want it. You should desire it conform to how God designed it. Meaning monogamous and permanent with one person for the rest of your life. Just as we are wed to Christ for the rest of eternity. So quick note here. Uh, I wouldn't be, I'm, I'm not too naive to perhaps think as you all are sitting here in your chairs and I'm talking about all of this stuff for you to be feeling a bit finger pointed or condemned because man, you might be thinking I've got a history or a past that Nathan doesn't know about or maybe he does Maybe I'm thinking he does know about it, and he made this whole thing about me, right? Uh, That's not what we're doing here. Uh, What I said was that forgiveness in the gospel is not enough, but forgiveness in the gospel is a great place to start. Um, You listen to me, and I'm about to show you a quick video here that's going to hammer this point home even more. But you, every single person in this room, are not damaged goods if you've got a sexual past or history. You're not ruined uh, for a future marriage. So perhaps you've seen this. This went semi-viral three, I don't know, maybe it was when I was in Louisville, so like six or seven years ago. Uh, but this is really, really helpful, helpful from Matt Chandler. Maybe just ignore the first 45 seconds or so because he's talking about uh, uh, the church and how it can be kind of contextually weird, uh, but just bear with us until, the fir- until we get through the first 45 seconds or so. Chris, you got it? But it, it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, 
started to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I, won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, th this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, um, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, uh this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up. And his big crescendo, I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ won, you're not even teaching the basics of our faith. So that's good. That gets me a little emotional every time I, I watch it. But, <clears throat> um, yeah, so uh, Jesus wants this 26-year-old single mom who's in an extramarital affair. And so I'm, I, I think we don't have anybody to that level uh, here. So, I mean, I, when we went through the entire Old Testament with, with our youth group, I just kept saying, like, look, comparing to 
Joseph's brothers or to David himself, right? Is anybody in here an adulterer and a murderer and uh, all of these things? No, but God is good and faithful to forgive and to cleanse and to, to bring life to, then yeah, then he's, he wants you as well. Um, so all that to say, I want to say that right off the bat, um, that I hope that you aren't feeling a finger pointing from me for the rest of our morning uh, because of a guilty conscience, which, which might be good, actually. God gives us consciences for our good, um, and we can actually sear those consciences. We can suppress them so much that we begin to ignore them. So perhaps this morning we begin to awaken our consciences a little bit more. However, that said, uh, I just want you to hear from me that I'm not here saying you sinner, okay? Uh, while we all are, Jesus wants our sin and he takes it upon himself on the cross. So uh, let me, this we went a little bit well, that's about right uh, for this first one. Let's uh, let me pray for us. Uh, we'll take ten minutes, maybe fifteen. We'll we'll get back here at five till five till so nine fifty five. Uh, take take fifteen minutes. Use the restroom. Get some coffee. Get some snacks. Eat an orange, and then we'll get back in here. God, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the way that you have created us. That you have created us. Uh, not just for ourselves, not just for our own desires, not just for our own uh, fulfillment. That you have made us for others, and you have made us for yourself. So I pray that this morning we might begin to have our desires, uh, begin to change a bit on what we think about and how we think about um, the possibility of a dating or marriage relationship. God, we're so thankful for the church. We're so thankful that you have given us this church specifically uh, but, but the church universal, that we can uh, experience deep, rich friendship, relationship, communion with each other, and certainly deep and rich union and communion with your son, with, with Jesus, now and, mo- and forevermore, uh, so that we don't actually need the thing that we're talking about. But we do pray that we would begin to, as marriage is a good gift from you, that we would begin to think more clearly uh, with, more, uh, with thoughts that are more honoring to you and to others uh, on how to think through this about these kinds of possibilities that are on our, on, in our future or perhaps uh, right in front of us today. So we pray that uh, you might be glorified in this and that we might uh, experience deeper uh, relationship and friendship with each other as we think more clearly about all these things today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be back here at 5 till.